Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm your host Mark Hamilton and today we'll be taking a look at weather and we do have snow in the forecast. We'll talk about sports, about the football and volleyball going on in the state. We'll talk about Kane, Wyoming. And finally today we'll conclude with a story about Big Nose George. Thanks for hopping on board and we hope you enjoy the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather here on the last day of October. Happy Halloween to everyone. Looks like it's going to be a nice couple of days in front of us. Got some really beautiful temperatures. It looks like on Wednesday night we'll get a little bit of moisture, possibly some snow, a little bit of a cool down. It's going to be cold uh, until the weekend. It looks like we'll get back in the 40s. But now that we're getting into November, we know our temperatures start to change. And of course, we have daylight savings time coming up on Sunday, or Saturday night, I should say. Fall back an hour, which is always a little depressing here in Wyoming with the getting dark a little bit early every night. So, But the weather looks good, and uh, looks like it's a great night for the trick-or-treaters to go out and have a good time. So winter is just right around the corner, but we're going to enjoy what we have. Taking a look at Wyoming sports. The Wyoming Cowboys were in action over in Hawaii as they took on the University of Hawaii. They came out on top 27-20, to 20, another good win for the Cowboys. They've got this week off, they have another bye week, and then they will be in action the following week down in Fort Collins for the Border War for the Battle for the Bronze Brute against Colorado State, and that should be a really interesting matchup. Cowboys have three games in front of them and have the potential of winning all three of those. If they win all three of those, they will win that crown for the conference division that they're in. They'll win that Mountain Division, a chance to play in the Mountain West Championship game. And the Cowboys definitely are just playing some great football right now, and it should be an exciting three games. Two of those are on the road, and that Boise State game, I think, is going to be the toughest game for them, is at home, the last game at War Memorial. So hopefully we'll see the Cowboys continue on on this streak and in two weeks that they'll bring that bronze boot home in high school sports the state fall sports are including up their state events state volleyball is this week in casper for all classification football is down to their semi-final games for all teams so it's an exciting time of year we always like to make some predictions in our football those playoff games are at the home to the higher ranked or rated team in the seating, those games will be taking place this weekend for all the classification for five classifications in the state, and they will those winners will meet again next week at War Memorial in Laramie. Quite an event for all those kids who get to go down to Laramie for that game. And right now, I make my predictions. I I really think that it's going to be in the one A six man will be probably Little Snake and Dubois in that championship game for 1A Pine Bluffs and Shoshone. Also for 2A level Lyman, which will be a replay of last year's state championship game where Lyman came out by a couple points. I think Cody Star Valley is going to be the championship game. Star Valley has a tough game going to Douglas, but I think that they have the opportunity to win that game. That's going to be a toss-up, but I really think Cody is Star Valley. And, you know, Cody's just a machine up there in Park County. They continue to put out these players, and the teams are just unbelievable. And finally, in 4A, of course, we got a 
another team with the Sheridan Bronx have just been in that state title forever. It's just like just pencil them into the championship game. But I think with a long shot, I think they'll play Natrona in that championship game. Now, moving over to volleyball, of course, all the teams will be coming in at the same time and it's quite an event. All the games are played at the same time of before court set up for all four classifications for volleyball. In my predictions in volleyball, I think in 1A, of course, Riverside Southeast, I see in the in the championship game, and I'll give that nod to my hometown favorites or the, up here in the Bighorn Basin, the Riverside Lady Rebels. I think that should be an outstanding match. They look like they're the two best teams going in. Both of them have potential tough matchups in those semifinal games. I'm I'm thinking that Riverside will probably play Hewlett and Southeast would play Cokeville. And either one of those teams has the potential. If they have a down game, they could get upset. But I'm going with Riverside in the championship in 1A. In 2A, looking at Bighorn, and, and they've been kind of a juggernaut this year. I think the West is a little bit weaker. Rocky Mountain uh, is came out of that uh, Western Conference. And I wouldn't be surprised that you might see Burns in that championship game going up against Bighorn. They came out number two out of the East. But we're going to go with Bighorn uh, with the championship in 2A volleyball. In 3A, I'm pretty much just penciling in Mountain View and Lyman. I know Wheatland finished first in the East them in maybe the championship game but Lyman and Mountain View are, are so strong and just seem to gel this time of year or so but I with the matchups Mountain View has been pretty much dominant and I think that would carry through to the state tournament and so I'm going to go with Mountain View with the 3A. In 4A it's uh, going to be East and Kelly Walsh I, I pretty much pencil that in. Now Kelly Walsh has a tough matchup with Laramie in the semifinals to go anyway, but pretty much those are the perennial powers, and uh, I would pick East in that matchup with Kelly Walsh. So we'll see next week how bad I did or how accurate I were in those uh, predictions ahead of these games being played. But again, we like to urge all fans to get out to these events. There's a lot of events going on. Uh, some, some sites, if you get to Casper, good opportunity to see a lot of good volleyball. Also, these playoff games will be played around the state, and there should be some outstanding action. There's some great matchups going in. So good luck to all the participants. Uh, there'll be a lot of yellow buses on the roads over the next few days. I know everybody's going to be doing some traveling down to volleyball with some potential weather hitting the state. So I hope everybody drives safely, and we'll see how everything comes out next week. Today we want to look at one of our ghost towns here in the state of Wyoming. And we want to talk about Kane, Wyoming. The history of Kane, and that is K-A-N-E. Dust to mud and gone but not forgotten is how Bill Scott describes Kane in his book, Pioneers of the Bighorn. Kane grew up on a sagebrush-covered flat about two miles south of the mouth of the Shoshone River. The small town established in 1912 was plagued by winds and caused dust storms in the summer and blowing snow in the winter. It began as a railroad shipping point for lumber, cattle, and sheep. The town was located on the Chicago, Quincy, and Burlington Railroad. When Scott got off the train in 1912, the town consisted of four log houses, a frame section house, and a small gypsum block building that was the Kane store. There was no depot, but there was a railroad car body sitting beside the track where freight could be stored out of the weather. Kane was an important transport center. 
The Cane Ferry was the only crossing of the Bighorn River north of Grable. This ferry was used by sheepers to move sheep from Cowley, Byron, and Garland to the Bighorn Mountains. It also became the training center for farmers and ranchers of the Dryhead and Crooked Creek country. Like any small town, Cane had people that made it a community. Grandma Neely, who ran the hotel and the boarding house, where you could get a bed and three small but delicious meals per day. Mr. Neely, locally referred to as Dr. Neely, was around to provide basic medical services, but for emergencies, Dr. Croft would come by horse and buggy from Cowley. Miss Edith Scott taught first grade through eighth grade in the schoolhouse built in 1906. M.B. Rhodes ran the first state bank built in 1918. John Smith and his sons ran the Cane Ferry. On Saturday nights, ranchers and farmers came from all over the northern basin to attend dances and hear D.E. Bassett play his fiddle. On these nights, the store stayed open late just in case some young woman might need a pair of shoes for the occasion. By 1930, Cane began to grow and included a bank, two general stores, two hotels, a motel, a dance and pool hall, and a school. During that same decade, the Dayton Cane Road was built across the Bighorns. A highway bridge was erected and the Cane Ferry went out of business. To take advantage of the tourist trade, several service stations and a motel were open. No one knew that in 30 years, this growing town would be slated for destruction. In 1965, with the Yellowtail Dam nearing completion, the Bureau of Reclamation knew that at a full capacity, Bighorn Lake would flood Cane. They condemned the land and bought it from the community. Unlike many towns destroyed by construction of dams, no effort was made to re-establish Cane at a new site. In 1967, the rising lake waters silenced the hum of Cane forever. Today, the Cane-Iona Cemetery, a Cane Railroad marker, and old bridge abutments are all that remain of the small community. Although you cannot see the buildings or even the pattern of the city streets, the stories of the community can still be heard. The town of Cane is gone, but definitely not forgotten. A rather interesting story about the town of Cane, as was mentioned, with the development of the West and the need for water and new lakes, a lot of communities went by the wayside, similar to Cane, but again, another chapter in our Wyoming history. Today we're going to take a look at a character that was brought up in last week's podcast on Wyoming's first female doctor. Individual is mentioned, Big Nose George. And in this article from Lori Van Pelt from wildhistory.org, Big George, a grisly frontier tale, Big Nose George. A phrase, walk in my shoes, takes on chilling connotations when the shoes are made of human skin. And although the creation of such a pair sounds so gruesome to be unbelievable, the shoes exist and are displayed at the Carbon County Museum in Rollins, Wyoming where additional items reveal more of the story of this mysterious outlaw, Big Nose George Parrot. Rollins' physician, John Osborne, had the shoes made from parrot skin after his March 22, 1881 lynching and wore them to his 1893 inaugural as Wyoming governor. Osborne later served as a director in the Rollins National Bank and displayed the shoes in a glass case in the front lobby there. What led George Parrot to such a grisly end? Even before he died, he was known for frontier crimes. He had been arrested for horse thief, tried by justice of the peace, and acquitted. He was also believed to be, have kept his headquarters in the hole-in-the-wall country, west of present-day KC, Wyoming, with a number of other outlaws of the time. 
His name, perhaps, was a reference to his large, beak-like nose. He developed a reputation for stealing from travelers on stagecoaches and then progressed to train robberies. In August of 1878, Big Nose George and his gang, which included Dutch Charlie Burris, planned a theft from the Union Pacific Railroad pay car near Como, Wyoming, east of Medicine Bow. At that time, the UPR carried cash via the pay car monthly for its own company payroll. Bandits loosened a spike in the rail, wrapped it with telegraph wire, and hid in the sagebrush, planning to tug the spike and dislodge the rail to derail the train so they could ascond with the money. But sharp-eyed railroad employees spotted the wobbly spike, paired the damage, and alerted lawmen before the train arrived. Big Nose George and his men fled to Rattlesnake Canyon at the base of Elk Mountain, about 25 miles southwest of the crime. Carbon County Sheriff Deputy Robert Whittlefield and the Union Pacific Detective Henry Tip Vincent tracked him there. The outlaws killed them. The murders occurred August 19, 1878. Big Nose George and his gang were later reported to have stolen several thousand dollars in cash from the Miles City, Montana Territory merchant named Khan when in the spring of 1879, Khan accompanied the military paymaster wagon train from nearby Fort Keogh to Bismarck, Dakota Territory. Khan was traveling to the east on a purchasing errand. The soldiers were headed to the Northern Pacific Railroad to refund funds to be distributed at the fort. The outlaws eluded capture for a while but it appears Dutch Charlie was caught early in 1879. Tensions ran high in southern Wyoming along the Union Pacific Railroad. People were incensed about the murder of the lawmen. On July 23rd, Charlie was being transported from Laramie to Rawlins for trial when the locomotive stopped for coal and water at Carbon. There, a mob boarded the train, dragged him off, and hanged him on a telegraph pole. He was not considered worthy of burial in the Carbon Cemetery, where Deputy Whittlefield was laid to rest. Dutch Charlie unmarked grave is located somewhere in the sagebrush outside the cemetery boundaries. One account indicates the criminals apparently bragged in Miles City bars about their recent successful exploits, including the Wyoming Territorial Murders. Someone wired Carbon County Sheriff James Rankin, who headed to Montana in July of 1880, and brought Big Nose George back to the Wyoming Territories. Two other members of the gang had escaped. Rankin escorted his charge first to Laramie and then rode with him on the train headed to Rollins. On September 13, 1880, Big Nose George was arraigned in Rollins. He told his lawyer his name was George Francis Warden, reported his birth date as being on April of 1843 in Dayton, Ohio. He first entered a guilty plea and then changed his plea to not guilty. On November 16, 1880, the jury was sworn, and two days later, George again changed his plea back to guilty. A motion was filed for arrest of judgment and sentencing, and the court took him under advisement, but denied the motion on December 15, 1880. At that time, death by hanging was the punishment for those found guilty of murder. Big George was sentenced to hang on April 2nd of 1881. Ten days before the scheduled execution, Big Nose George tried to escape from the local jail. He had used a pocket knife to saw through the rivets on the heavy leg shackles that bound him and stuck jailer Robert Rankin in the head with them. 
Rankin's wife, Rosa, discovered the attempted jailbreak and managed to close the outside door. She fired her husband's revolver in the air, and men came running to help. Big Nose George's hands were tied behind his back and a noose secured around his neck. The mob made him stand on an empty kerosene barrel, tossed a rope over the crossbar of a telegraph pole, but the rope broke. The bandit fell, begging to be shot. Instead, the lynch mob placed the noose and made him climb a 12-foot ladder. This time, with repaired leg irons weighing him down, climbing was difficult. Finally, he choked to death. One report estimated a crowd of as many 200 people were in attendance to watch. No one came forward to claim his body. Dr. Osborne, who had been asked to be present during the hanging to ensure the outlaw was dead, and another Rollins doctor, Thomas McGeehee, a Union Pacific Railroad physician and surgeon, claimed the corpse for medical study. Osborne made a death mask and had the outlaw skinned and the shoes made. McGehee studied the criminal brain. Big Nose George's skull was cut into two pieces. McGehee gave the top half to his protege, Lillian Heath, who later became Wyoming's first female physician. The lower skull half was buried in a whiskey barrel with the rest of the outlaw's bones. In 1950, the whiskey barrel was discovered in Rollins when workers were excavating for a new department store at 5th and Cedar Streets, and the skull halves were briefly reunited and then split up again. The skull cap is now housed at the Union Pacific Railroad Museum in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and the lower half of the skull is displayed at the Carbon County Museum in Rollins. Renowned forensic anthropologist George Gill and Wyoming State archaeologist Mark Miller reunited the halves of Big Nose George's skull in 1995 when they worked on a study of frontier violence with the University of Wyoming graduate student Christy McMahon. The study confirmed that the skin on Arsborn's shoes were indeed human, but neither the shoes nor the small piece of skull on the skull cap were tested biochemically because such testing would have destroyed them. Gill hoped to match the skin on the shoes to the skin on the skull and to prove that the skin did indeed belonged to the man known as Big Nose George. Throughout the years, several people from throughout the United States and Canada who believe they might be relatives of the outlaw have contacted Miller and his historians, Carbon County Museum in Rollins. Miller, who recently retired as state archaeologist, also had his family connection to the story. Miller's great-grandfather, I.C. Miller, served as Carbon County Sheriff at the time of Big Nose George's lynching, but was working in another area of the county that night. Miller and Gill haven't done any work on the case since the McMahon study. Miller explains that they are proceeding with caution regarding any further DNA testing. There is no such DNA match yet, and there likely won't be one soon. Questions about who George Parrott actually was have complicated the matters. Miller suspects the man did not lie to his lawyer when he gave a different name, but needs to know more about who the man actually was before pursuing familiar links. An incorrect assumption could lead to wrong results, and with the small size of the skin sample that's available, the scientists might not have a second chance to prove the identity of the man. In fact, we may not be able to submit a sample for study because we don't have much. Miller said in a 2014 email interview, I don't know that we have new research available for years or more. Again, quite a gruesome story on the fate of Big Nose George Parrott and his misdeeds and his execution. And again, it was rather interesting that our story from last week about our first Wyoming physician used part of his skull as a planter 
as was related in the story from last week. Joining us today, and we hope you enjoyed our show, as per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming here at Let's Talk Wyoming, your everything Wyoming podcast.